0: So as Ian said, I'm I'm Soren, and Ian has graciously let me uh, preach the day, and I just want to say also thank you to Ian and Ecclesia. I'm in seminary in the area, and this church has just been a really um, impactful and profound uh, part of my experience the past three years, so yeah, thank you to all of you. Um, I'll start with a scripture reading, which is Luke 18, 9 through 14. It's a parable of Jesus goes like this. It says, he told this next parable against those who trusted in their own righteous standing and despised others. Two men, he said, went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed in this way to himself. He said, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people greedy, unjust, immoral, or even like this tax collector. I I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector stood a long way off and didn't even want to raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. Let me tell you, he was the one who went back to his house vindicated, vindicated by God, not the other. Don't you see? People who exalt themselves will be humbled, and people who humble themselves will be exalted. So we're doing a sermon series right now on cultural idols, and the idol I'm doing this week is the idol of success. Or you might call it significance, or greatness, or being of high value or worth. Um, and I'm going to maybe, in a sense, argue that there's two forms of success that we often see ourselves drawn towards, or we see in culture. And there's two; they're found at the end of two different paths. Two different paths that we also feel ourselves drawn towards. We see in ourselves, and we see in culture. So I'll start with one and. This is maybe a common experience, but I was actually on Instagram the other day, I don't know if you know of it, and I had an experience that probably many of us resonate with. I was scrolling through pictures of friends, um, some happy, some adventurous, some artsy, you know how it is, when I saw one particular picture that caught my eye because in it was somebody that I had never seen before, and they looked like the coolest and they were tagged in the picture, so I went to their page, and I looked around, and one of the first things I noticed was how many followers they had, literally thousands of them. And it was no surprise. I thought, honestly, their life looked amazing. They were, they were skiing in Colorado on this trip, and they were sipping sangrias in Barcelona over there. They were laughing with friends in New York City. They went to a good school. They were into fitness. They were talented, they had the coolest friends, an amazing apartment, a nice car, and everybody seemed to admire them. By the look of it, they seemed like an influencer. I don't know if you've heard of that either. (laughs) But as I was going through their pictures, I felt something well up inside of me, and in the back of my mind, I started rearranging my own life. I started thinking, I, I, I need to go on more adventures, and I, I need to focus on having more f- uh, fun and, and looking good while doing it, and I have good friends, but honestly, I probably get, get, need to get a few friends that are especially cool to, I don't know, and, <laughs> and I need a good paying job so I can do all these things, and I'm in, I'm in seminary, but it's not helping anything, and, um, and all of this seemed to be spurred on by a longing. A longing created by a growing sense of emptiness that was welling up in me after comparing my life to this person's Instagram page. And, and I sort of resented this person, if I'm honest, but I, but I also wanted to be them. And I felt dissatisfied and insecure, and I was willing to change things in my life in order to not feel that way anymore. And you know, in fact, this is, this is actually what I wanted. I wanted this person to look at me and feel small in comparison. I wanted people to scroll through my Instagram page and be in awe of how much fun I was having and how cool, smart, and talented I am. And maybe then I would have felt some sense of satisfaction or maybe I would have felt like I'm, I'm cool, I, I'm, I'm decently great, I have a reasonable amount of significance. And I'm sure you've all felt like this, too, on Instagram, at work, at school, and nearly any venue we live in. And you can feel like a success when others look inadequate beside you. And I'm sure you've also felt the reverse. You've, you've felt small and insecure, standing next to someone who just seemed better than you. But what is this longing? I think we can call it envy. And it's one path we see in ourselves and in culture that seems to lead to success. That is, the people that we envy are people that we perceive to be successful. And if I want to be successful, I too need to be envied. Now let's take a step back and we'll take a closer look at the text for the day. So as it said, there's two characters in it. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now the Pharisees were a Jewish religious sect in the the first century, and the word Pharisee in the Hebrew literally meant to be separate or to be detached. Now to really understand what they were about, we we should take a step even further and get a little bit of uh, the sense of Israel's history leading up to the first century. So if you remember, Israel was in bondage in Egypt Pharaoh let them go. They went up with Moses. They occupied the land of Israel, the promised land. Eventually, David became king. They had these glory days. David died. Solomon ascended the throne and built a temple in Jerusalem. And this temple became the center of Israel's worship to God. But then Solomon died, a new king came, and eventually, soon after, Israel split There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom. This northern kingdom was more unfaithful and quickly got conquered by Assyria. And shortly after, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. And Jerusalem was ransacked, the temple was destroyed. And they were brought into exile into Babylon. And then Babylon was conquered by Persia. And some of the Israelites went back into uh, Israel and rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and then Persia was conquered by the Greeks, and then Rome came and mopped everybody up. (laughs) And so by the first century, Rome was in control. And so you see, Israel had been ping-ponged between all these different ruling kingdoms, facing immense turbulence and uncertainty. And how do you maintain faithful worship to God as a weak conquered nation enveloped within a hostile culture? How do you not fall into the customs and idol worship of the surrounding nations? So the Jewish religious community broke into several sects in order to try to answer this question. So on one hand, you you had the Sadducees, which in a sense were the cultural elite of the day. They cooperated with Rome to kind of govern the religious affairs of Israel. And in consequence, they were very influential. They had a lot of wealth. They had a lot of power. And they also had a pretty thin theology. They didn't believe in, in the resurrection of the dead. Then you also have what we'll recall the Essenes, which basically just totally separated themselves, went off into the desert, called fire upon the city, and waited. And then you have the Pharisees. And they tried to preserve the deep, rich theology of the Jewish tradition and faithfully worship God without compromise. They tried to live as separate and detached, but still within, still within the people of Israel. And they strictly abided by the Levitical laws and added more laws on top of these to ensure that they would remain faithful to the law. And to be honest, it's hard not to empathize with them. And in a sense, if we're, if we're looking at even this church, we would be prime candidates to be Pharisees back in the day. Um, yeah, so we often demonize the Pharisees very easily and dismiss them. But they really had a mission in front of them that was deeply important and they were deeply committed to it. Still, what Jesus points out in this parable about this Pharisee is the same posture that he calls out in many Pharisees. And what is it? When the Pharisee prays, he stands by himself and he's full of words and he prays in a very self-referential way, centering on his own virtue and meritorious acts, talking about how he surpasses the demands of the Torah and compares himself to others and especially this tax collector. And Jesus says he misses the point. Then we have the tax collector. And tax collectors were hated by the Jewish community. They were deeply complicit with Roman rule and basically took money from their own people, the poor, the oppressed, and gave it to the Roman superpower. And they were known as crooked, swindlers, hypocrites, traitors, and they really didn't do anything to uphold faithful worship to God. And so we have this Pharisee and we have a tax collector The Pharisee, a man who thanks God that he is not like sinners. And if you notice, he asks nothing from God. And then we have this tax collector. And he's a sinner. And he trembles in the temple and won't even come near the altar or raise his eyes towards heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, sinner that I am. And it doesn't seem like he notices the Pharisee standing over him. So, the beginning of this parable says it's talking to those who trust in their own righteous standing and despise others. And it ends with saying that it was this tax collector who went home justified. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, let me tell you a quick story. Um, When I was in college, I knew two brothers who grew up in a pretty poor area of Chicago. Um, Their father, his name was James Larkin. He graduated from our same undergrad and could have done anything. Had a wealth of opportunities in front of him and he decided to go to this poor neighborhood in Chicago to be a pastor. And there were 32 languages spoken within two blocks of his church. And it was a church literally filled, like literally with gang members and prostitutes and the homeless. And he started Bible studies and English second language classes and soup kitchens and job trainings and youth summer camps. And he preached every Sunday. And he stayed there for 30 years. And he wasn't good-looking or flashy, and he wasn't particularly well-spoken, to be honest, or charismatic. He was very ordinary and a little run-down, but he was also faithful. And one of his sons had a serious had serious medical complications growing up, and they they struggled to pay for it. And later on, his wife got a terrible neurological disorder. And their sons were scared that she would never see them get married. And she struggled, but their father took care of her. And he ran the church and the soup kitchens and the summer camps and struggled in ministry and could only afford a beater car. And then he got brain cancer. And he died uh, 18 months later. And I watched the funeral over Zoom, and it was powerful, It was very powerful. It was packed. And many people got up to speak, and they cried, and they talked about how their lives had been changed, and they talked about the faithfulness of God, and they said that this was a great man. And nobody envied him. Nobody in that room envied him. But we all deeply respected him. And we felt something well up inside of us, and we sensed that this was something significant. This was something great, of great value, and it was a success. And it was the best sort of life that you really see in the world. So we have these two paths. You might call one the path of envy, and the other, that I sense at this funeral, you could call it the path of respect. I don't know, we we had a graphic. I don't know if it's going to show up. But theoretically, oh, it's over there. So let's look at these two paths. Two forms of success found at the end of envy, respect so if you remember the person of envy what does the influencer do well it seems like honestly most of their job is breeding insecurity and dissatisfaction in people so that they feel insecure and then are moved to consume if we're honest the person of respect actually raises up the value and needs of another above their own The way of envy is a way of self-exaltation, the way of respect is self-emptying. The way of envy is the path of least resistance. If we're honest, it's easy. You wanna look good, it feels good to have a little bit of power, it's like candy. It's really hard to do the right thing, especially when there's not immediate praise for it, and it takes courage. Envy is fleeting, and it's fickle. You can be the most envied person in the world, and you die, and it's gone. Um, Steinbeck says that when somebody dies at their funeral, all envy drips away, and you're left with one clean, cold, hard question. Was it good or was it bad? James Larkin has been dead for several years, and everyone respects him that I know. It's lasting. The people of envy are, are happy amidst life's distractions. You can bounce around, you got friends, you got lots of things going on, but not at night. Not when you really sit in the quiet moments and your true self comes to the surface and you're forced to struggle with it. Not many people are happy then. The people of respect, those though the waves of life crash on the rocks, the house is built on a firm foundation, and even in the midst of tragedy, in some of the deepest people you meet, there's this mysterious abiding peace and joy. The people of envy attract the power hungry. Envious people attract people who also want to be envied. You, you are attracted towards the people that you want to be like. And if someone makes me feel small and I'm attracted to that and I go towards them, what is it I actually want to be in that position of power as well? Well, the people of respect attract the broken, the lowly, the people who say, I'm down and out and I'm at the bottom of my barrel and I I know that this person will care. I can trust this person to love me even though I really have nothing to give them. The people of envy are people of the world, and the people of respect are people of love and faithfulness. So, that's the whole question. How do you become a person of respect? So I started, as I was writing this sermon, I was thinking to myself, and I'll share a little bit of my initial thought process, which may resonate with you. And it's, it's some of the ways we can just get wrapped up in ourselves. So I'm thinking, okay, I want to I be a person of respect. I don't, I don't want to be a person of envy. It's easy to be a person of envy. It's, it seems hard to take this other path. So what's, what's the first thing that I need to do? It's like, Well, I often lie to myself. I, I say I'm going towards this thing because it's for God, it's for good, it's for this. And really, if I, if I really said it, it's not, it's actually not why I'm doing it. In trying to be person respect i'm actually trying to, to get some achievement for which to be envied so I, I can't lie to myself i need to tell myself the truth and and dostoevsky has this quote that i love he says but above all don't lie to yourself because the person that lies to themselves and comes to believe their own lie gets to the point where they can no longer distinguish the truth inside of them or outside and thus they lose all respect for themselves and for others and losing respect, they cease to love, and they live out of fear, which is the product of all their lies so i can 't lie i 'm thinking, and, and why why is it hard not to lie well i guess i 'll have to give up certain things that i, I don 't want to give this up because it 's really good, and i 'll have to do this other thing that honestly, I just really don 't want to do that and it 's hard, so I guess it takes some sort of courage it takes courage to tell the truth okay so C.S. Lewis says that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point, and you will be tested. And when you're tested, are you just going to bottom out and everything falls on the floor and you, you crawl in self-seeking, or are you going to hold? So I, I, need a, I need to be a person that tells the truth, and I need to have courage, but towards what? I had A mentor back in the day who told me we usually just fit prayer into the cracks of our life. It's something that we squeeze in as an afterthought. But really, prayer ought to be that which orders your day. And he was a very monastic, mystic sort. And he was like, prayer orders your day, church orders your week, the feasts order your year, and pilgrimages order your life. And so if you've been at Ecclesia for a little bit, you've heard this term, a rule of life. Um, and rule there comes from the Latin term regula, which is related to a trellis, which a vine would grow up. So a rule of life is, is practical structures and rhythms and disciplines that you might say guides the vine of your life. And orders it towards God. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can't lie. I I gotta I gotta be a person of courage. I need to order my days around prayer, my weeks around church. I need to I need to strive, I need to have willpower, I need to get my ducks in a row, I need to do all these things. And actually none of it works. None of that works. because I try for a day, and I fall short. And I get caught in bad habits, and I quickly forget. And I'm trying to bootstrap myself with willpower and muscling through, but I find that willpower is a very sputtery thing. And it starts and it stops. And when you feel like a relationship with God rests on willpower, you come to the end of yourself in exhaustion, and you look down, and you think, is that it? Is that, is that all there is? It feels like you're clawing at a cliff that you're only sliding down. And best case scenario, at my best, when I'm, when I'm telling the truth, I have courage, I'm ordering my life in this way, I got my ducks in a row, I come to Ecclesia, I'm happy, I'm doing all these things, I'm like, I'm pretty good, at least I'm not like that person. Oh, I'm the Pharisee. Best case scenario, I'm the Pharisee. And what are we doing when we do this? Well, I think we've been trying to we've been trying to white knuckle the steering wheel of our lives and wrench it towards God. And, and what is that when we do that? I, I guess we're trying to climb to God as an achievement to be conquered and which to be envied for. I'm trying to get to God without God. And I only end up wrapped up in myself. And Luke says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But the tax collector stood a long way off and didn't even want to raise his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. God is not found through your own achievement and self assertion. God is not found through white knuckling the steering wheel of your life. God is found when you let go and when you surrender. And this is hard. This is in a sense the hardest thing because it's partly a death for those of us who want to be envied because it means letting go of every last vestige of it. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to disparage having a rule of life or telling the truth or having courage. These are all things that are deeply important, but those things cannot be done in a posture of self-assertion. Forming a rule of life is not manhandling your schedule towards spiritual growth. And a real God-blessed rule of life is actually a form of surrender. Prayer is not a spiritual productivity achievement. It's saying, I lean not on my own understanding. My life is in the hands of the maker of heaven. And a rule of life isn't done by holding on to everything in this world and then also trying to grab for some sort of 21st century hip spirituality. A rule of life is letting go of this world in a culture that only values material productivity. And saying that my practical schedule actually lives according to the logic of a different kingdom. And it's a kingdom that I'm fully surrendered to. And in letting go of this world, God will hold me. And God will bring me to himself and he will hold me fast. And so we can say with Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I am what I am because of God's grace. And his grace to me wasn't wasted. All my work, all my work was actually by God's grace, which was with me. My life is not my own. It's not my own. I've been bought with a price. Or Galatians, which says, now I can only boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through whom the world has been crucified to me and died to the world. And all my losses will show me that All I truly have is Christ. So, I'll end with uh, a final question or maybe analysis of of Jesus' life. How did Jesus live out a life of surrender? So Jesus, second person of the Trinity, Son of God, comes down in the incarnation as a baby in a manger, And what what was God doing when, when God, the king of everything, came down and condescended to become a weak human being? Philippians tells us this is the mind of Jesus the Messiah, who, though in God's form, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave being born in the likeness of humans. And having human likeness, he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Or when Jesus grew up and, uh, as a carpenter's son in, in, in uh, Nazareth, I'm forgetting that for a little bit, and he grew up and he got disciples and it was tax collectors and it was fishermen and it was all these people and wandered around preaching and healing with very little security and almost nothing to catch him when he fell, very little provisions. And he told, in the midst of this situation, he told his disciples to live like he did. He said, don't worry about your life. What to eat, what to drink. We worry a lot. Don't worry about your body, what to wear. There's more to life than food. There's more to the body than a suit of clothes. I mean, look at the birds, look at the birds. They don't plant seeds, they don't bring in harvest, they don't store things in barns. And your Father in heaven still feeds them. Can you add a single day to your life by worrying? And look at the lilies of the field. They're beautiful. Not even Solomon in all his splendor was as well-dressed as they are. And so Jesus lived with his disciples, went around healing the sick, proclaiming that he was the son of God, that the kingdom of God was coming down to earth, and he was accused of blasphemy. And they wanted to kill him. And in his final days, when doom seemed eminently on the horizon, they came to the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus came there with his disciples and he said, my soul is overwhelmed with grief. Please stay with me. Jesus was scared. Please stay with me. And Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Father, if it is possible, please, please, let this cup go away from me. But not what I want. But what you want. Let your will be done. And the cup didn't pass, and he went before Pilate, Barabbas was released, and he was beaten and whipped and carried his cross to Golgotha and was nailed to it, and they hung him up. And there was a thief on the cross next to Jesus who said, this man's done nothing wrong, I've squandered my life, and I'm I'm here for who knows why, but this guy doesn't belong to be here. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And their dying moments. And Jesus said, surely this day you will be with me in paradise. And I think this thief on the cross who in his dying moments very end of himself you could the bottom of your barrel jesus remember me when you enter your kingdom i think he's a lot like the tax collector god have mercy on me, sinner that i am who i think is a lot like james larkin the pastor who died from cancer who who lived a life of deep respect and self-sacrifice in the way of jesus jesus the one who came down and condescended to earth who lived a life of surrender and died and surrendered to god and was raised again And so we see two ways to success in the world. One is accomplished through envy and striving and self-assertion, and it's an idol. And it's a dead end. The other form of success is that embodied oftentimes by those we respect most deeply. And it's found on the path of surrender and self-emptying so that you might be filled with Christ and in the midst of life's storms your house will be built on the rock and though the waves crash there's deep abiding joy and peace and it's confusing to people who only know the logic of this kingdom this earthly kingdom and this is this isn't a dower thing this isn't some ascetic beat myself in the desert it's a happy Thing. When you see somebody whose life is actually in submission to God, it's powerful and it's joyous. And these people, it, when you, you feel this, you wake up and you have a faith that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. And it's almost too much to talk about. So we do things like this, like church. Because this is the only thing we know how to do with, with something that's that great.